All right, y'all know what book we're in? Way to go. Ah, ha, ha, ha. What is in First Kings? Kings. What else? What's in the book of First Kings? Anything important? What are we looking for in Kings? So we asking the question, what's in it? What are we looking for? What's the whole study built off of? Jesus. You all remember why we're doing the book study to begin with? We're coming off of Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. Jesus is resurrected. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. There's two people along the road with him. He starts to tell them about himself using what? Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. And as he's teaching them, they're learning. They get to a place. Jesus continues on. They say, hey, wait, come back and stay with us. Jesus goes and breaks bread with them. Their eyes are open. They see that it's him. And then they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scripture? That, for me, has become a key verse. Anytime I hear somebody preaching or teaching, I'm asking the question, is what they're saying making my heart burn within me? Is it revealing Christ from the scripture? And if the answer is yes, I'm ecstatic. If no, I wonder what's wrong. So that's kind of the litmus test when we're listening to somebody preach. Is your heart burning within you? So if we're going to look at the book of 1 Kings, one of the things that I want to do initially is talk about why we have a book of the kings to begin with. Because we're talking about the nation of Israel. You all remember how Israel came about. There was a man, Abraham. God called Abraham, gave him a promise, gave him a covenant. Josh taught about that in Genesis, that uh, awesome passage where Josh said, God walked with God and said, if you break the covenant, I will suffer the consequences looking ahead to Jesus. And from Abraham, we have his son, Isaac, not Ishmael, but Isaac. And then from Isaac, we have Jacob. And from Jacob, we have the 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery to Egypt, ends up being Uh, really fortunate for his family, God's providence for his family, because there's a famine and Joseph's there in Egypt and has all of the stores of food. So his family comes to Egypt, stays, and rides out the famine. And then what happens? The whole people ends up being enslaved by Egypt, by the Pharaoh. So we've got a man, a man, a man, 12 sons, now a whole people group in Egypt. We don't have a king. We've got a people. What does God do? He sends Moses to them in Egypt, to to rescue them from Egypt. They're brought out. And as they're brought out, God takes them up to Mount Sinai and he gives them his commandments, his laws. He tells them, this is how you're to follow me. We still don't have a king. We have a people. But if we look before Exodus 20, where the law is given in Exodus 19, we read this. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And this is before the giving of the law. And God says, what? You'll be a kingdom of priests. What does a kingdom have? It has a king. And who is the king? Who was the one giving this nation the commands to follow? It's God. God sets himself up as king of Israel. He doesn't set up a man. He sets himself up. So how do we go from that? to a book of the kings where we have men reigning over Israel. If you have your Bible, let's flip to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. 1 Samuel 8 says this, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, 
and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Now note there, it didn't make him unhappy that they were talking bad about his sons. It made him unhappy that they're asking for a king. Just a little side note, there's probably a little sermon in there somewhere. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, I'm going to emphasize some words, and you all listen to this. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. Let's stop and pray. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your spirit, which leads us into truth. Lord, we pray that right now you'd open up your word to us, that you'd remove the scales from our eyes, that we'd be able to see. Lord, that you would remove what's in our ears, that we'd be able to hear. And that you would soften our hearts. Lord, we want to see you and we want to see Christ in scripture. So show us that tonight. We love you and make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The last two verses that we read here, and on that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. That's a really, really sad verse. God is warning them that this king is going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. And then when you're tired of all the taking, you're going to come to me and you're going to cry out and I'm not going to hear it. That's what, that's what God just laid out. And what's the people's response to this? But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, there's a lesson in there that we need to take don't look to the world and say, I want that. Don't do it. Right now, I'm talking to one of my close friends that is looking to the world and wanting what it has to offer. And when we're going back and forth, I just shared a simple truth with him. I said, God only restricts what is evil from you. Don't want that. What God says, don't have Stay away from it. What God says, have, enjoy it. Okay? Israel made the mistake of saying, we think we can do better. We think we are a better choice for our future, for our happiness. We'll trust ourselves. And what does the Bible say about ourselves, about our own heart? It's deceitful and wicked. And even when God shows them and, and says, these are the things, you're asking for a taker. 
You're asking for a master that you will be his slave. They say, yeah, we want that. We'll take the taker. And they reject God from being their king. That is why we have a book of the kings to begin with. It is a nation's failure to trust God. So with that said, let's turn to the book of 1 Kings. I think it would be important, too, before we actually look at it, to wonder at what we would hope to find in the Bible about a book that deals with kings and kingdoms. And I'll tell you some things that I, as a husband and father, would love to see in a society. I would love to see a ruler that is wise and humble and that deals justly. I would love to have a society that benefits from that to have a people around me that I could trust and feel safe. I would like to not have other nations going to war against us. Those are some things I would love to see in a society that I live in, that I have my wife and my children in. I want those things, okay? So when we're looking at a book of the Bible that's talking about that, I like to open it up with what do I expect to see? What do I hope to see? And those are some things that I would hope, okay? I would love it if there was plenty and there was no need. You know, those are some things that, earthly speaking, I want, okay? So we're going to see if that's in here or not. I think it's important to just put a little pin in that. So the very beginning of 1 Kings opens up with King David. If you remember, the very first king uh, was Saul. Good-looking guy, really tall, kind of charismatic. People really flocked to him. Ended up not being the best king, kind of went crazy. And then there was David. If you remember, there's uh, the opening with David when, when Israel's uh, going to battle with the Philistine army, and there's the giant, the champion, Goliath, a man trained for war from his youth, a beast of a man. And here he is taunting the army of God. So David comes on the scene bringing food for his brothers, and he sees this, and he says, that's not right. Our God is greater. How can y'all stand here and take that? So this little boy ends up going to Saul, to Saul the king, and saying, I can, I can fight this man. Let me fight him. Saul doesn't believe him. David convinces him. He says, look, when I was a boy and, keep, and keeping sheep for my father, there were lions and bears that attacked, and I had to go kill the lions and the bears to protect the sheep. This guy's no different. God will be with me. So Saul lets him, and it says that David ran towards Goliath. He's a champion. He's somebody that, humanly speaking, you look to and you say, that's a guy I want to follow. Okay? No wonder they made him king. You know, I would want to follow somebody like that. So the book of Kings opens up with this king, King David, except he's not this champion. He's an old man, so weak that he can't keep his body warm. So the nation picks out a woman to stay near him just to keep his body warm because when you're old and feeble, cold can be deathly. And they say, we want to do everything we can for him. So they give him a woman to keep him warm. And right here, at the very opening of 1 Kings, I don't want to miss this, we see something important. No matter how great a man that we have is, a king that we have is, none is ever so great. No matter what battles they fought and no matter what champions they've slain, None has ever been great enough to conquer death. And death is our greatest enemy. Humanly speaking, death is our worst enemy. So that makes us look to the one who has conquered death, Jesus. So right here at the beginning of Kings, when we see David, a champion and a hero, and a man after God's own heart, we see that even he is a failure. And there's only one hero in the Bible, and that's Christ. So we see a lot of turmoil as David's old. There's a lot of uh, positioning for his throne. One of his sons tries to take the throne, and Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba, who's a very famous woman, you all know her, Go to David and make the case. Adonijah's trying to make himself, himself king, but you said, and God said, that Solomon would be king. So one of David's last acts is to make that happen. And Solomon takes over the throne after David, and then David dies. So we're starting to wonder, who is this Solomon? Who knows anything? Solomon's a very you know, prominent figure. Who can tell me something about Solomon? 
Yes. Ah, good job. Yeah, that's a funny story about that. All right, so he's the one that had the, the story where the two women were fighting over the child, which we're going to read in a second. That's exactly right. He was really smart. How did he get there? Was he born that way? Yes, he prayed and asked God for great wisdom and understanding how to know what's right and wrong. So let's read that. That's in uh, Kings 3. We'll start in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Verse 4. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father. So your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you've asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So here is where Solomon feels the weight of responsibility and sees himself as inadequate. And he comes to the Lord and says, if you're going to give me one thing, I need wisdom. I need wisdom to be able to know what's right and wrong, how to judge your people. There's too many. And that's the prayer that the Lord answers. It makes me think about the passage in James when talking about trials and tribulations. And it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give it to you. Okay, just a side note, that's probably a really good prayer to pray whether it's because of the trials and tribulations or whether it's because you feel a task that you don't feel equipped for, let's make that a regular prayer. Lord, I need wisdom to do what you've asked me to do. That's a really good prayer to pray. I don't think that the Lord's going to not honor that. When he's told us in James, he answers it. And when we see it answered here. So just tuck that in the back. That's a really good prayer to pray. There's, there's two things I tell my kids to pray for besides their salvation. One is for wisdom. Say, kids, I want you all to pray for wisdom. You're going to need it. And the other is I pray, I tell them to pray that their hearts would burn within them to be obedient. Because I know the benefit of a heart that burns to be obedient to your God-given authority, and one day that will be to God himself. So that's two things that I tell my kids to pray for consistently. Wisdom is one of them. They're going to need it because when they get to your age, you need a lot of wisdom. 
a lot of help making a lot of really key decisions that are going to affect the rest of your life. There's little decisions and big decisions. Those big decisions have got big consequences. We need the Lord's wisdom to carry us through. So make that a regular prayer. So right now, we've got a king who's humble, who's coming to the Lord and asking for wisdom. And we have a lot of reason to hope. All the things that we hoped we would see in the book of Kings, a wise, humble king who rules justly, we're starting to see that. We've got a lot of reason to hope. The very next story is exactly what you mentioned. It's where two prostitutes come to Solomon. They've got, they've got something that they need him to rule on. They both have a child. They both went to sleep. One wakes up with a dead child. She comes to Solomon and said, I woke up with a dead child, but it's not my child. The woman next to me swapped babies in the night. So now what do you do? Somebody comes to you this, you've never seen these women before. You might even think that they're not even worth your time. They're two prostitutes. You might say, I've got princes and I've got rulers to deal with. Y'all are not worth my time. But Solomon doesn't do that because God has given him a wise and discerning mind. You know what he does? He says, somebody bring me a sword. They bring a sword. He says, cut the baby in half. Give half to her and half to her. Then everybody's happy. And immediately the mother of the child cries out, no, 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 no. Give her the child. Don't kill it. Solomon says, that's the mother. Solomon was wise. He knew that a mother's heart cared more for the safety of her child than even having the child in her own arms. He gives the child to her. She goes away happy. Okay, so you see how a wise king is affecting this society, even down to the lowest people in the society. And we have a lot of reason to hope because there is a wise king who's ruling justly. So if we keep going, chapter four, it's political stuff. He's appointing this person here, appointing that person there. Chapter five, he gets ready to build the temple. And that's really significant. Because up to this point, from Abraham to this point, the people have only ever had a tabernacle. They haven't had a place to worship God. And God had chosen Solomon. He told David, I'm going to choose Solomon to build me a house. So Solomon starts to do it. The Lord blesses Israel at this point, phenomenally. Everywhere, we, everywhere you look, business is booming. They have plenty. And so Solomon starts getting all these riches, whether it's it's rare woods and trees or stone being quarried out. All of these resources start come pouring in. And Solomon uses those to build this temple that they can worship God in. After that, he builds his own house. And again, you just see the excess of wealth in this nation and his wisdom and all the nations surrounding him, looking and respecting him, and respecting the nation. There's no war. There's no need. Everything is going great. And the promise that God laid out, if you follow me and walk in my statutes, there will be these blessings. We see that at work all the way up to Kings chapter 10. In Kings chapter 10, the first half deals with a, a queen of Sheba that comes to see all the accounts that she has heard of Solomon's vast wisdom and excessive wealth. And when she sees them, she's blown away. She said, what I've heard does not come close to what I, I actually see. Your servants are blessed just to be in here, just to hear your wisdom, just the way that they're dressed, they're dressed excessively. And the rest of the uh, chapter goes through a whole list of all of the wealth being poured in to Solomon. And here we pause because this is a turning point. And before it turns, if this was a roller coaster, this would be as high as it goes up. That click, 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 click to the top. This is as high as it goes up. And here we see a picture of what a kingdom on earth led by a God-fearing wise man looks like. And it's awesome. Honestly, it's awesome. Like it's a place you would want to live. Everybody ate plenty. They drank plenty. 
There was no need. There were no wars. Everybody was happy. Earthly speaking, this is what we hope for in our country, okay? And they had it. They've got a place to worship God. They've got a king that's following that God. Like, this is as much as we could hope for. And it makes us think of the kingdom under Christ in the future. And it gets us excited. That is going to be awesome. In that kingdom where Christ reigns, ultimate wisdom, there will be no need. There will be no more death. This right here, when I read this, something in me really does get excited. And I think, I can't wait for Jesus. But it doesn't last. Chapter 10 is the last good chapter that we have. There's 22 chapters in Kings. And if that roller coaster just got to the top, it starts going downhill fast. I want to read some of uh, chapter 11. Y'all look with me. Verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. What does God say? Don't marry these women. Why? They'll turn your heart away to other gods. Pretty simple, right? Especially if you're a really wise king, right? It's not hard instructions to follow, right? But what happens? Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. See, here we see a picture, something that seems small, but it's like a wedge placed on a fault line. And that fault line starts to crack and grow wider. It would almost be like if you've got to travel 100 miles and you're one degree off, at the beginning, it doesn't look like you're very far off the track. But at the end of the 100 miles, you're way off track. Here's what I want to say about this. With Solomon, it was women. With you and with me, it will be something. Do not disobey the Lord. Do not go after the things of this world. Walk with the Lord and obey his commands. Don't get the one degree off. Okay? That's important. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and he fell. Okay? Let's learn from that. Commit yourself to the Lord. As soon as this happens, like I said, everything starts going downhill. Solomon dies soon after. There's other kings. The kingdom gets split at this point. Up to this point, it's been one kingdom, one people. There's all these, these infightings and wars. The kingdom gets split between a north and a south kingdom uh, under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. You don't have to know them. And it starts going from man to man to man. <laughs> and without going through it, here's the important things. Each king seems to be worse than the last. That's the takeaway. The two kings that it ends up going all the way to, I think it's the sixth and seventh king, I might be wrong. King Omri, it specifically says he did worse than all that were before him. His son, King Ahab, did worse than all that were before him. So scripture goes out of its way to make a point, things were worse. And then they got worse. And then they got worse. And what is it that's, that's worse? It's pagan idolatry. They're worshiping Baal. They're no longer worshiping God, they're sacrificing to idols that they've erected. And the people's hearts are not following the Lord. And everything that the Lord promised, both in Samuel with having a king, and when he told Solomon, if you walk in my ways, all those things start to happen. The people no longer flourish. There's war. There's all kinds of uh, 
just negative things at work in the people of God. We get to, so we follow that through chapter 16. When we get to chapter 17, and this is a, another turning point, chapter 17, we're introduced to a character that's really important. There's all kinds of pictures around his life that coincide with Christ, okay? It's one of the only men that Scripture tells us does not die. That's something you kind of remember. And up to this point, we've never heard of him. There's no easing us in. We've got all these kings, all this terrible stuff going on, and all of a sudden in chapter 17, we read, now Elijah the Tishbite. That's the first mention of him. Said to Ahab, who was the current king, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So we've never heard of him. The first time we do hear of him, he comes before the king and he says, hey, it's not going to rain until I say so. There's not going to be any dew on the ground until I say so. Now, there's a couple things that this makes me think right off. We can't help but think that if you're going to follow the Lord, it's going to look something like this. God loves you. Come on, group hug. Everybody, let's all get along. God wants good things for you. And maybe there's a time and a place for some version of that, but that's not what we see more times than not. Elijah comes on the scene and says, you're going to have it really hard. God's going to withhold the rain until I say go. He's not promising good things. He's not likable. He's not popular. And this is on the whole people. This is not just King Ahab. The whole people are going to suffer under this. Now, if you look closely, what's going on physically with a drought in the land is God showing them what's going on spiritually. See, when King Ahab and Jezebel murdered all the prophets of God, there was a drought of God's word. God is rebuking them. He's saying, what you've done spiritually, I'm showing you physically. Okay? It's not just random. God is showing the people physically the spiritual reality. I can't help but wonder with the past few years what God is trying to show us. There's probably something there if you look for it. So Elijah comes on the scene, promises a drought, and is instantly hated by Ahab. God provides for him. He says, I want you to go to this little brook by the Jordan. I'm going to give you water from the brook. I'm going to have ravens, birds, bring you meat and bread. So God shelters Elijah for a time, and he's fed in the wilderness, which makes us think of Christ, who also was fed in the wilderness. After that brook dries up, God sends Elijah to a widow. He says, I've commanded her to take care of you. So Elijah goes, he finds this widow. She's out gathering sticks. He says, hey, bring me some water. She says, okay. He said, oh, also bring me some bread. She says, now look, I've got enough meal, a handful, and enough oil to make one more loaf of bread. And I'm going to feed it to me and my son, and then we're going to die because I have no more food. And there you see the suffering under this drought is not for Ahab, but for the people. The whole people are suffering. And your heart goes out to this woman. So what should Elijah do? Should he give her something to eat? Should, he asks for the food. He says, okay. Even though you only have enough for one more meal, give it to me. Feed me first. And then go make something for you and your son. The woman does this. She goes in, she mixes, she bakes, she makes the bread, she gives it to him, she goes back. The flour's not gone and the oil is not gone. She makes enough for her son. And this goes on day after day after day. 
God provides for this woman. Now, I can't help, but when I read this, I see something. That little widow woman is looking to what she can do and what little resources she has to survive one more day. Because when we take a piece of bread or food and we eat it, we're expressing faith that that food will sustain us for one more day and that it will hold death back for one more day. That's what we're doing, okay? There's a spiritual principle at work here as well. We make the mistake of thinking that we spiritually can hold death back one more day. We put our works into the mix and we start baking it. We make it look good, taste good, and then we consume it. But that will not sustain us. When we stand before the Lord, our works will not sustain us. There is one thing spiritually that does. Jesus. He is the bread that came down from heaven. And when we express our faith in Him, we take Him and consume Him. And we say, I'm trusting you for life. I'm trusting you to hold death back one more day. Then we can stand before the Lord in His presence, full of life, fed, whole, sustained. So I can't help but see the reality physically and spiritually at work here. Also, there's the connection. Elijah makes all this food out of nowhere. Jesus does the same when he feeds the 5,000. So there's a link right there between what Elijah is doing and what Jesus does. Right after this, the widow's son gets so sick that there's no breath left in him. And she kind of gets onto Elijah. What are you doing? You're coming here and bringing remembrance of sin. I'm going to lose my son. Thanks a lot, Elijah. He doesn't get mad. He says, bring me your son. She brings him to Elijah. He takes him to a room. And Elijah lays over the son once, twice, three times. What does that remind you of? How many days was Jesus in the tomb? Three days. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus in the tomb. And there Elijah cries out to the Lord, Please give him life. The boy comes back to life. That's powerful, y'all. God alone has the power to bring back to life. We see Jesus do it with Lazarus. We see Elijah do it. Here, another connection to Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ and of God's power. So all of this happens at the, widow, uh, at the widow's house. And at some point, Ahab and another man go out looking for straw for the horses, they end up finding Elijah on the road. And at the very end of 17, or maybe not, uh, in chapter 18, Verse 17, we have this meeting between Ahab and Elijah. And Ahab hates Elijah. He's basically got a search warrant out for him in all the other nations. If he can find him, he wants to kill him. Because he holds Elijah responsible for the drought that's afflicting him and his house. So we have this meeting in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to him, to, near to all the people, and said, 
if there's a takeaway verse in the book of 1 Kings, we're coming up to it. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. If there's a verse to take away from the book of 1 Kings, you just heard it. If God is God, follow Him. If, if He's not, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. But if He is, follow Him. And this is what Elijah is telling the people who have been going back and forth. Who do they worship? Their king's telling them, Baal. But they remember God. You can't worship both. No man can serve two masters, right? And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Now this is important right here. Elijah told Ahab to call the people. Then he speaks to the people. This is not done for the benefit of the priests of Baal. It's not done for the benefit of Ahab. It is done for the benefit of the people. And Elijah has just issued a challenge. God's God, follow him. If not Baal, how are you going to know who's God? Here's how I issue a challenge. Make two altars, two bulls. The God who answers with fire, he is God. And all of the people say, sounds good to us. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, going to the bathroom, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs awakened. And again, this is for the benefit of the people so that they would see the futility of worshiping this God. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after was their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Always look for patterns. When something's mentioned three times in Scripture, it's significant. Three times here, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Why? He's not there. There is no bail. They're dancing around, they're cutting themselves to something that does not exist. That is why there is no answer. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And again, we see Elijah taking the people, speaking to the people, drawing them close. He said, come close. I want you to see this. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Very symbolic. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob very symbolic. We have a divided people group. But Elijah builds the altar, uses the 12 stones, and it's significant. He's saying you are one people. You might have a northern and southern kingdom in your mind. God chose one people. 
there's one Israel. To whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of flight, he, uh, fly, uh, two seas of seed. He separates the altar. He separates it from everything else. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now there's been a drought. This wood is dry, easy to light. So in my mind, it can be really easy to use some trickery here. You have dry wood. If you're smart, you could find some way to light this. Elijah's taking that out of the equation. There's other things going on, but that's one of them. This could be going back to Leviticus, to the priestly sacrifice where they purify the altar. I don't know. But three times he has them dump this water on the altar. It's completely saturated. And there's a lesson there. When God wants to do something, he don't need your help. As a matter of fact, he is glorified by doing the thing that is impossible to do. You don't have to make it easy for God. Okay? So if God wants you to go somewhere, maybe you don't have to go make it easy for him and say, God, I got a bunch of checks. I don't even really need to rely on you to go there. Just a thought, just a little connection there. But the point is, when God wants to do something, he will do it. Okay? If he wants to choose a nation for himself, he'll probably do it through a man that has no children. I say, I'm going to give you a son. Well, that's not easy, is it? It's not exactly like Abraham was just busting out with kids. Okay, God does this. When God wants to do something, he does it in a way that only he can do it. We see a picture of that here. Elijah's dumping water on this. You can't light wet wood. I've tried. When you're out in the woods and you're desperate for a fire to keep you warm and it's raining, it's really nice to have that. It's a bummer to have wet wood. Forget it. Go cuddle up in your tent with your sleeping bag. It's not happening. So three times they do this. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, and notice there's no dancing. There's no crying out. There's no shows of devotion of cutting himself. None of that. He comes close as the people are drawn in, and he simply says this prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's Jacob's other name. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. 950 prophets, the people revolted. They slaughtered them. This was done for the people, for their hearts to be turned back. God showed himself so that they would say, God is God, not Baal. This whole thing was set up when Elijah looked at him and said, stop limping between two opinions. If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And the people fall on their faces and say, it's God. 
It's God who is God. Baal is not God. God is God. That is... That has got to be the takeaway for us. When I talked earlier about wisdom, one of the smartest things you could do right now is decide for yourself, is God God? If He is, follow Him. If He's not, live, drink, make merry, for tomorrow you die. Who cares? But make that decision. Make it wholeheartedly. Take hold of Christ. Express your faith in Him as the one that can sustain your soul and hold death back. Let's pray. Lord, it is unbelievable the way you interact with your people. It's unbelievable that you would be so merciful as to show such a great sign to them. The fire coming down to that altar so that they would be able to see you are God. Lord, you have given us the sign of your son being resurrected from the dead. And we cry out, you are God. God, let our hearts be turned to follow you. Cause our hearts to burn within us. Take away everything that is not you and give us more of yourself. Lord, we love you. We know not in the way that you deserve Lord, we have faith and belief. Help our unbelief. Do in us what we cannot do ourselves. Draw us to yourself. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.